Life Audio. Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant Podcast. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard. Hey, listen, Christians, I think that it's time that we looked at ourselves in the mirror and asked a hard question. Am I really experiencing the love of Christ? You know, that I really believe in. Am I experiencing it today, yesterday, tomorrow? Have I felt it for a long while? And no judgment. Isn't that the main reason we go to church? You know, I had this dialogue with a well-meaning pastor recently who was concerned that if we raised our people's expectation of experiencing the love of Christ at our worship services, what would happen if they don't? They may just feel hurt and just leave. I was dumbfounded. I mean, I asked the pastor, but isn't that what they're doing now? I mean, God help us. Paul is rolling in his grave about now. He never stopped talking about the ridiculous love of Christ for the unlovables. Check out Romans 8, Ephesians 3, 1 Corinthians 13. It's a critical time in church history to recalibrate our understanding of the gospel. Among other things, the gospel is all about God's love for the unlovable, the unloved, and the unlovely. And that's all of us on any given day, if we were only just a little bit honest. I mean, is this what you believe too? Well, this should make a huge difference in our lives, our sense of worth, identity, value, relationships, hope, so many other things. But is it? Or have we lost expectations of much of that on this side of heaven? Not just checking a box. I'm not talking about Christian bumper sticker or new t-shirts or church mission statement. And this is very important. Maybe you feel like Christ is just disappointed in you. Many Christians do. For many Jesus followers that I've spoken to in 30 years of ministry, this is a confusing deal. And I get it. You know, I get the pastor's concern. I do. I don't want to get hurt either. And nothing has hurt us more than relationships, love or lack of love or fear of love and bad love. But we Christians are supposed to be the love experts. We're supposed to be billboards for the love of Jesus. Well, how's that going for us, right? So many Christians are feeling more and more unlovable, unloved, unlovely, more unworthy, more alone in the universe. I mean, am I right? We seem to be doing more and more and feeling less and less. One of the problems, I think, and that's the point of this series, is that we've become so confused by the topic of what love is, and Jesus' love as well. You've heard the four categories made popular by C.S. Lewis. I mean, everybody has. There's agape, which is God's love, phileo, which is friendship, storge, which is compassion, and eros. Well, you know where that is. But is that list right? I'm going to show you that those categories are overly simplified and, in fact, confusing, and in many ways not exactly biblical on their face. You know, I was speaking on this very love of Christ for the unlovable at a church on Valentine's Sunday. In between services, five men went out of their way to tell me that they believe that they just experienced the love of Christ. A number of women shared the same thing. I mean, people were converted. I mean, in my experience, to see that happen among men... Look, that's what we call in the biz revival. That's the love that we should be experiencing much more than we do. Well, why are we missing that? So in this and the next three shows in particular, I'm going to lay down a roadmap for a renewed understanding of the love of Christ that honestly looks a lot more like what Paul was talking about 
than what we have been embracing lately and certainly in my lifetime. Now, it's going to sound radical to you, but it's just good old biblical theology. Do you want to experience the love of Christ more? Don't you want that for your family and church? Well, I'm Dr. Bill Senior, and this is God's love for the unlovable. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. We have a love and being loved crisis on our hands. Loneliness, depression, anxiety through the roof. Divorces, broken marriages, way too high. I mean, Captain Obvious, right? Well, this series is about the love of God for the unlovable, the unloved and the unlovely. And that's all of us, if we were even a little bit honest. It's super good news for people who long for more. And if you're listening to this, I'm guessing that's you. And we all know hurting people who wonder about whether they are lovable. So help us get it out to them. They will thank you. Well, let's get started. Listen to the song, What's Love Got to Do With It, from Tina Turner. Listen to the lyrics. What's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? Yeah. It's a great song. It's a classic even after 40 years. Do you hear her ambivalence about love? Her fear of a heart that can and likely has been broken before many times. Dark clouds surround the song. We know that she had a a divorce from her husband, Agent Ike, after a horrific abusive relationship that led to depression and suicide ideation for her. Love is dangerous. And we've all felt that some. Nothing has hurt us more than relationships. Historically, when the song came out, it wildly resonated with so many, particularly young women, who felt unlovable and abused. So she was not alone. And today, I'm going to tell you that the question is not what's love got to do with it. The question is, what love have you known? I mean, you'll see what I mean. Please check out all God's love for the unlovable shows. I love your feedback, Bill, at gospel-app.com. Well, in this show, we're going to start off with a bang by looking at what happens in our brain when we fall in love. In the next show, we're going to look at some of the history of how people looked at love. The ancient Romans, by the way, were afraid of it. They even passed laws to try to legislate it. I mean, it's a pretty funny story. Uh, And yet we inherit so much of their understanding of love. You may be shocked. My hope is that on the journey, we're going to come to a greater experience of the unique love of God. We humans are created to be loved and to love. We've just gotten very confused by the buffet of things out there called love. It's not 
just understanding the love of God for the unlovable more. I think we all do that. It's about experiencing it more ourselves and in our lives and relationships, a little or a lot. So you ready to get going? Your brain. A little review. To oversimplify, let's divide the brain functionally into two parts. There is the rational frontal lobe, which is prefrontal cortex, or PFC. It oversees being reasonable, you know, thinking, considering things strategically, making choices, the will, being able to imagine long-term consequences of decisions. Hey, listen, if you're a Star Trek fan, think of Mr. Spock, the rational Vulcan who struggles to control his emotions. If you could choose to love which so many people say, this would be the place to do it in your prefrontal cortex. It is the part of the brain that generally asks the question, hmm, is that a good idea? But our prefrontal cortex is not fully mature and online until we're in our 20s, which explains a great deal of teen behavior, why they take risk, why they make decisions that seem irresponsible. In some ways, it's just not all their fault. And by the way, a brief plug for Good Enough Parent. If you're hearing this and you are a frustrated parent of teens and tweens, please check out our free online resource for you, Good Enough Parent. 15 free short online tips will be sent to you one a day for 15 days. You're going to learn about your teen's brain, why they are not being reasonable, the subconscious two questions that they're asking, and what the right answers are, and why they emotionally blow up at times. But here's a clue. Largely, it's because their prefrontal cortex isn't online. They can't be reasonable. I mean, not much anyway. That's goodenoughparent.online, and it is free. All right, back to the show. Then there is the emotional part of the brain, the very powerful midbrain limbic system with the amygdala, fear cycles you've heard about, the hippocampus, where memories are stored. Interestingly, along with the exact emotions you felt back then, attached to them, the hypothalamus, the nucleus accumbens, which is the brain's pleasure center. I always thought that sounded like a spa. All of that is brilliantly constructed and integrated by God for your benefit. The limbic system subconsciously controls all of our experience of emotions, or at least most of them. So hear this. This is all automatic, subconscious, meaning you can't control it through your prefrontal cortex. You can't control it by choosing. Underline that. Your midbrain is largely responsible, all behind the scenes, for emotions such as fear, anger, pleasure, sadness, depression. It often drives your behavior, again, with or without your rational brain's approval or agreement. It Meaning... You know that bad decision you made, a reactionary decision? You know, neuroscientifically, it wasn't all your fault. Now, don't get me wrong. <laughs> You're responsible for your choices, your emotions, your blow-ups. But it just wasn't all your fault. In some ways, it was your brains. And that, to one degree or another, made you do it. <laughs> this is true when people begin to fall in love, too. And, boy, I think, I think this will change how we see love. In brain scans... There are predictable areas in our brain that just light up when you're falling in love. Chemicals associated with the reward circuit flood your brain and produce a variety of responses. You know, racing hearts and sweaty palms and flushed cheeks, feelings of passion and anxiety, a new desire to write really bad poetry. In a sense, you're on a chemical bender. 
So this will sound strange to you, but during the initial phases of falling in love, your stress levels skyrocket. I mean, you've heard of cortisol, the stress hormone most familiar as the driver of the fight, flight, or freeze cycle. Your body recognizes falling in love as a neurological crisis that has to be managed. Technically, it's like two people become OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And by the way, falling in love is a disorder. They can only focus on one thing, one person. And look, you just can't live that way. But try to tell that to people in love, right? And then as you fall in love more deeply, your brain becomes engorged in dopamine. Good stuff. Dopamine is associated with your body's reward system. Matter of fact, it drives it. It's wildly desirable. You get a dope high. The two lovebirds are becoming, in one sense, addicted to each other or addicted to falling in love. Same thing. They are addicts to the pleasure from a neuroscientific point of view in the very same region of their brain that people become addicted to alcohol and cigarettes and crack cocaine and heroin. So falling in love and addiction have much more in common than we want to admit. The more you're with each other, the more pleasure or euphoria your brain's experiencing. (laughs) In one study, I almost left this out, but I thought, no, it's it's a good audience. In one study, male fruit flies who were separated from their female counterparts drank four times as much alcohol as fruit flies that were with female fruit flies. Are you following (laughs) Look, how many times at a wedding have you heard the words, you're like fruit flies, you know, but the idea is, is the couple begins to jones for each other like an addict. I told one couple in a marriage I officiated, in one sense, this is an intervention. We, your friends and family, have seen all the signs of addiction, the glazed, confused look in your eyes, the reduced level of performance, your inability to shake it off. You can't be reasonable, and we are here for you. (laughs) The crowd loved it. And look, for love, there's no known cure. You just have to go for it. Do the best you can. You can't stop it by choosing. Remember, it's subconscious. You're kind of only along for the ride for the most part. Well, this is probably a good place to stop and get a word from our sponsors. We will be right back. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. 
Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. The good news, bad news is that, like all addictions, the initial overwhelming effects wear off. They stabilize. Eventually, typically one year, two years, the constant cravings, the OCD, the withdrawal symptoms, the uncontrollable drooling, uh, I guess that was maybe just me, it becomes more manageable. That dazed look in your eyes goes away and you realize that you've kind of been in a coma for the last few years and that there are other people around and you get back to work. All right, falling in love. As romance grows... Your brain releases even more chemicals, the hormones oxytocin and vasopressin. This is so important. These are triggered typically by touch and kissing and hugging, intimacy. Women in particular, it's an amazing gift from God. And so what do they do? Oxytocin in particular is called the bonding or love hormone. What it does, it deepens your feelings of attachment and openness to a deeper connection. It makes you feel loved. It makes you feel lovable. makes you feel liked, even adored. It makes you feel safe and secure in the arms of the other. And this is such good news, particularly for people who've been traumatized by relationships or had bad relationships before. It causes you to let your guard down a little, or a lot, and opens up your receptivity to receiving love again, to being loved. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, have you noticed that so far I haven't mentioned your prefrontal cortex much at all in this falling in love process? Because for much of the falling in love experience, the chemicals have shut down your prefrontal cortex. And all of this happens behind the scenes to you. Your brain is subconsciously being made to fall in love. Right, Your prefrontal cortex isn't driving the car anymore. It's, it's a passenger along for the ride asking the question, hmm, I wonder if it's a good idea. Falling in love is just a phrase using human words that we use to describe what this amazing chemical cocktail is causing my brain to experience. You're not making it happen. It's happening almost on its own. It's magnificent, really. It's a tribute to our creator, God of love. He can make unloved unlovable people, traumatized people, begin to feel love again. Isn't that great? But here's the point. When Elvis says that he can't help falling in love, neuroscientifically, he was more right than he likely knew. Ask any teenager, they will tell you, you can't just choose to fall in love or to fall out of love. It's a brain thing. It's wonderful, maddening, and dangerous all at the same time. So... What difference does all of that make to our understanding of God's love to me? To agape, right? It, because honestly, it sounds more like eros, right? Let me share a story. I was just a baby Christian driving down a busy highway in Kansas City area. I was alone. I was digging some Christian music. In fact, I can remember the very song, even though it was a long, long time ago. Out of the blue, I was filled with this amazing sense of being loved by Jesus. By the way, it was as if he was there in the car hugging me. I know it was him. I totally did. I'd never experienced this before. Not like that. And I started bawling. It was so moving and powerful. 
and honestly out of my wheelhouse, I was flush with love for Jesus too and gratefulness. I had to pull over on the side of the highway until it passed. And that was the first time, but not the last time, that I experienced this gift of God's love being lavished upon me, even without me doing anything. And look, I suspect you've had similar stories. I mean, you should. It's our inheritance. It's going to be perfect in heaven, but even now we should experience that more often. Not perfectly, our heads would explode. But it's part of our story. It's part of our testimonies. It should be obvious to us. We should definitely experience it in worship more than we do. You know, I was on my denomination's revitalization task force for a number of years. It's surprising how few pastors and staff really believe that anymore. I mean, no judgment. Good worship leaders know the power of music to ignite my brain's dopamine, that rush of euphoria in worship. And that's a good thing. Most participants want that. It's a gift of God. But fewer Worship leaders or staff or pastors are aware of the importance of oxytocin to participants' overall worship experience. It's been my experience in 30 years of ministry that the communion table, the Lord's table, the Eucharist, whatever your faith community calls it, is the prime place where the Holy Spirit ignites, among other things, your oxytocin. There, in my opinion, more than any other part of the worship service, participants are touched by Jesus spiritually, and spiritually touch Jesus, so to speak, right? The bread, the wine. It's there in my experience that so many leave feeling loved by Jesus, feel more love for Jesus, and wildly importantly, they feel secure in their special relationship with him. They would describe it as, hey, I just experienced God's love, or I feel like my faith has been restored, I have come to see those as descriptions of one and the same thing. The person is falling in love with Jesus again. We all want that more, right? I mean, I do. In one church where I served, we began to see the people's response to the table as one of the measurements of how we are doing spiritually as a church. You know, one of the church growth measurements, like butts in the seat or offering, we counted how many times people were weeping or laughing as they came up front for communion, right? Just saying. We didn't publish it. This is not in their prefrontal cortex, them just choosing to feel loved. I'm convinced that partly it involves the spirit causing the forced release of oxytocin. And it's no doubt it's much more than that, but it's at least that. It feels like I'm falling in love with Jesus again. You know what I mean? The theologian John Calvin called this falling in love with Jesus. Those are my words. He called it pleroforia, the Greek word for assurance. And as I read how he describes it in his institutes, it's very similar to this new sense of openness and connectiveness and security and vulnerability and feeling of being loved that we described above in the human falling in love process. And in my experience, people at the Lord's table begin a little or a lot to fall in love with Jesus again. So powerful, life-changing. Calvin calls it the secret working of the Spirit meaning the Spirit is pleased and intentionally makes we Christians feel this assurance, this pleroforia, this falling in love. You know, I don't want to minimize it as only a brain chemical thing. Again, it's surely more than that, but it's not less than that. That's what it feels like. It feels like I am falling in love with Jesus again. Look, 
I know so many Christians who know in their prefrontal cortices that Jesus loves them, but they haven't really experienced that rush of pleuroforia in a long time, no matter what they do. Maybe that's you. I've done surveys among Christians and in churches all over five countries, and I would guess that over two-thirds of those who call themselves Christians haven't experienced this powerful, transforming love of God, this falling in love with God for a long time. God loves them with all of the love of the universe, but they haven't experienced it in ages. It's tragic. So often, they just stop expecting it. I think that's where most people are, or they just leave churches. I mean, doesn't that explain so much in churches today? Well, what are we learning about love? Falling in love, humanly and spiritually, is not something you do or choose to do. It's something that largely happens to you in the deep hidden recesses of your midbrain. You just do not have the muscle group to make yourself open to being loved, to drop your bruised defenses, to make yourself vulnerable to possibly being hurt again. Your brain will fight you every time. But how many times have you been told that you just need to work harder to choose to love God more or enough, whatever that enough means, or choose to be loved by God or to just receive the love of God for you, to lean into the love of Christ? All of that's church speak. Stop it. For the most part, you can't do it. Is that making some sense now? It's probably a new concept, maybe troubling a little. I get that. Just ride with me. Check out how Paul puts it. He realizes that the most important thing for the Ephesians to experience is the present experience of the love of Christ for them and others. They already have it. They just need to experience it more. And me too. Listen, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Ephesians 3, 16 and 19. You know, he says three times in the section that we... Humans are created to need, and that's a concept that's so important to our spiritual growth and our understanding. We're created to actually need an alien power that's always necessary, that's readily available upon the asking, and totally God-sourced, and it's accessible only through the Spirit in my inner being, wherever that is, not from our choice, our wills, our working harder, our faith, again, whatever you mean by that or your ability to love, and again, whatever you mean by that. But by means of a power, the lone unique power that we don't innately have that comes exclusively from God and must be asked for and received on an ongoing basis, today, tomorrow, the next day. Have you been told that? Well, to what end? I mean, okay, I get this. I ask and I get this power from God. Why would I need it? Because I'm not entering a triathlon or deadlifting 500 pounds. I need his power right now in order to begin to access the love of Christ for me, for God, for others. I mean, what? Wait, Dr. Bill, I thought that 2,000 years ago, Jesus purchased all of the love of God for me, his love for me. Am I right? Yep. But, but... Maybe what you weren't told very clearly is that unless you first access this unique power of God today, right now, 
you aren't going to experience that love very much. It's yours, and yet, look, let me give, you, give it a shot to explain it. Your brain has been designed by God to experience love. Amen. But also, it's designed to protect you from getting hurt by bad love. Nothing has hurt you more than relationships gone sour, am I right? So your brain, your midbrain, is doing what it does by design and protecting you from getting caught up in potentially dangerous love, right? And doesn't that explain so much? So you and I need an intentional power that is designed innately. It can undermine that massive love fortification that my midbrain has brilliantly been setting up since my infancy. All you need... To do is to ask God for that power. And you can do that. It's so important. Yet so many well-meaning leaders have told you that to get that experience of being loved, you just need to do more things. Uh, Praying and tithing and worship and do them enough, again, whatever that means, until God actually relents and loves you. It's his fault, right? Well, how has that approach gone for you? Paul totally doesn't say that. Instead, he speaks of our need to ask for God's power that will make us begin to feel the love of Christ. Wait, hey, Dr. Bill, this is a great question. Are you saying that God has to make me feel his love? Yes. What were we thinking? <laughs> of course. Right? Isn't that what we're learning about our brain? The Holy Spirit, the very creator of your brain, can do that with a wave of his tiny finger, humanly speaking. I can't say how he does it, over my pay grade. But my educated guess is that he is making my midbrain release dopamine and oxytocin, right? He's doing more, but he's at least doing that. And that makes me feel like I am once again falling in love with Jesus, humanly speaking. I can't help it. I can't move it along. I can be a willing participant, though. I'm for a moment dancing with Jesus, and he's the one leading the dance. When you're dancing with Jesus, you'll even begin to feel more love for others, even unlovable others. You'll even love yourself a little bit more. Experiencing this love of God right now in the moment is certainly more than a release of brain chemicals, but not less. This isn't emotionalism. This is what Paul was preaching. So, happy real Valentine's, Christian. Think about how good this news is to those people who have been deeply traumatized by relationships who just, humanly speaking, right now can't love others or can't receive the love of others. It hurt too much. God's love can do it. Well, here's a good tool that has helped so many Christians who came to me feeling unlovable, unloved, and unlovely, a little or a lot. And again, that's all of us, if we were just a little bit honest. Because they wanted to go back to those early days when they were feeling the love of Christ for them and they were flush with love for Christ themselves. It's not a prayer. It's more of a Witnessing tool that begins to reach that unreached people group in our midbrains. It's not just for your prefrontal cortex, it's for your subconscious. So repetition matters. We're in the realm of deeply dug defensive habits, so we must work to create a new habit uh, that's bigger than the old one. How? Simple. Say the simple and cluttered gospel twice a day for 45 days. Say it aloud, word for word. There is actual science involved. For now... Just sit back and listen to it as I say it. Let the words and statements wash over you. There's no guilt trip or shame. Nothing you need to change or try harder at. 
We won't ask you to choose to do anything. But like Paul, you're asking God to make you experience the love that Jesus paid for 2,000 years ago. All good? Okay, here it is. Jesus' follower, strictly because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, God actually loves you. He loves you with all of his heart as much as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. He can't love you any more or any less than he does right now. He loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be. You can't add to this love or take away from it. Now, I get it. It often feels like you've messed it up or need to do something so that God would like you better. Not so. How do you experience it more now? Simple. Good news. There is something that you can do and are invited to do. You can take daily baby steps to ask the spirit inside of you to make you know, experience and feel just how much God loves you right now. Just ask. Ask again later today. Ask tomorrow. Make it a spiritual habit. All right. So let me ask you, what struck you? What jumped off the page? What bothered you? Make notes. It's, here's the question of the day. Did you feel a little bit of the love of Christ for you? And if so, dance a little bit. In the next show, we're going to look at some fascinating aspects of the Greek and Roman views on love that I'm going to argue has infected our own views of love. Not biblical at all. Interested? In the meantime, keep saying the simple uncluttered gospel twice a day, 45 days. You can get the simple uncluttered gospel bookmarks from either gospel-app.com or gospelrant.com. They're inexpensive by a bunch. Hand them out to family, friends, church, Bible studies, visitors, and help us get the word out about this new God's Love for the Unlovable series. They will thank you. It would be helpful if you would follow this podcast and give us a good review, either where you listen to podcasts or at bill at gospel-app.com. I'm finishing a new book about overlooked and underappreciated women in the Old Testament. It should be published soon. It is fantastic. If you want to know when it gets published, drop me an email, bill at gospel-app.com. Also, let me know what you think about this show. I would really appreciate it. See you next time. Take heart. Child of God. Do you ever hear sayings make their way through the culture and the church that seem nice in theory, but are actually theologically problematic? My name is Shara Donahue, and I'm the host of The Bible Never Said That, a podcast where we examine these popular sayings under the lens of biblical truth. We cover sayings like, God won't give you more than you can handle, time heals all wounds, and follow your heart. We also spend time exploring how people use Bible verses out of context. If you want to grow in discernment and truth, join us and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.